the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Today we're going to talk with Jason Thompson. It's been a while since we've had him on. He's executive director of Portland Fellowship, where they proclaim freedom for the captives. And he'll uh, be with me in studio later this hour. So we're looking forward to that. Well, I think one of the things that's uh, top of mind for lots of Oregonians is whether or not snowpocalypse that was delayed may arrive at some point in the not-too-distant future. Now, this is, what, uh, this is what we're seeing. And I want to hear your thoughts on this, because I know you follow this more closely, and you have a reliable meteorologist that you like to, uh, to look to. But we're being told that snow could start falling early Saturday morning. That's a bit of a change from even earlier this week, uh, where they thought it would be Friday. Um, but early Saturday morning, perhaps late Friday, with as much as four inches or more building up through Sunday. Um, several forecast models now show all snow starting early Saturday morning, we're being told. And if that's true, occasional snow uh, would fall near sea level all day and all of Saturday morning. That means Portland's accumulation could reach four inches of snow and possibly higher through noon on Sunday. Again, they're saying it's going to snow throughout sun, uh, Saturday night through midday Sunday. Now, some models show the possibility of 14 inches of snow through this Tuesday no. with models... <laughs> Showing eight inches following, falling rather Monday night. Now it is pretty early, so a lot of this is speculation. So you'd think maybe and that's there'd be a, a little, little bit more irresponsible, a little more cautious with these kinds of predictions. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Because I know you have a reliable yeah. local meteorologist that you know, says, "Ah, hold your horses." James, James, and I both follow the same guy. It's, yeah, it's Mark Nelson over at KPTV, and he's been in this market. For 25, 6, 7 years. So he is experienced with what the winters are like here. Right here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what he had said yesterday was he wanted to put kind of a tap the brakes on the weather drama. And he pointed something out that I thought was really interesting that I didn't know. And he said, weather models are notoriously poor for giving accurate snowfall totals more than a few days out. He mm-hmm. says that's why we mainly try to wait until two days. That would be the minimum before predicting snowfall totals because other than that, you don't know. They're not in agreement. Some of them are crazy. Some of them are showing no snow at all. You don't know. So tap in the brakes. This is what he said today, okay? He thinks that there will be some snowfall beginning Friday night. Friday night, okay. And going on through part of Saturday. Now, what he's going to guess at right now is saying that the Portland metro area up to Longview could get one to four inches. Most of that will be near the gorge and Clark County, and the least amount would be in the south and west metro areas. South of the metro area down to Albany, probably nothing Friday night because it's going to be too warm. It's Mm going to be 42 tomorrow. Okay. Things change a little bit over the weekend, but there are some big unknowns. He's like, do we get just scattered light showers on Saturday, maybe an inch of snow, 
or do we get steady snowfall that freezes up the roads right away in the morning as the cold east wind arrives? That would be the serious snowstorm. Uh, If it's the first option, the metro area roads would be in good shape because of the strengthening February sun, which keeps the pavement temperatures above freezing because air temperature is different than street temperature, Mm -hmm. right? So he's not making a whole lot of predictions other at this point with that other than what I had just told you. We're probably looking at one to four inches in the metro area between Friday night and Saturday night, but that totals will depend upon where you are. And he says that is still subject to change within the next 36 hours. Okay, so what I'm hearing you say is I should go to Costco and buy them out. Everything. I should make sure the generator is ready to go. Uh, I should put the chains on the tire now uh, because, you know, it could snow any minute and um, I should panic. Yeah. That's essentially what you're saying? Yes, I, the 14 inches of snow thing, definitely. Yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> well, now, I, I arrived now, at work this morning to one of my coworkers who was just, he was in full panic mode. Uh, not only was he announcing loudly about the 14 inch, I hadn't heard a thing about this, so this was all news to me at the time I arrived. 14 inches of snow, you've got to get some sort of traction devices. He described well, this new thing. It's called a sleeve, much yeah. easier to put on than a, Here's uh, the thing. Than a chain. I, so, <laughs> I know where he got that information. Uh-huh. It's from a particular... TV meteorologist in town, and he is the only guy who is saying this. That man shall remain nameless. We won't blame him right now. But uh, Mark Nelson is saying there will be nothing on Sunday. It's a dry day. Uh, There's going to be a second system that arrives on Sunday night. We could see a couple inches. And then there's another system that is coming in Monday night, which he says is a little bit wild. But... The models are all over the place with what that could be. It could be light snow or it could be a lot of snow. But again, we go back to the can't predict things yeah. accurately so that many what, days out. So what I'm hearing you say is I should hold off my full-blown full panic until Monday. I should make sure that my affairs are in order and that my will has been signed. Is that essentially what you're saying? No. <laughs> I would just say right now that we are probably going to be fine until tomorrow night. Yeah. And maybe make different plans for Saturday evening rather than being out and about because it might not be the easiest thing mm-hmm. to get around depending upon where you are. And then by Saturday night, they should have a better idea of what could be coming Monday. I'm a little disappointed. I was all ready well, for full-blown panic. That's, and... That doesn't help anybody. It just <sighs> drives me crazy because everybody here at the radio station is starting to freak out, too. It's just everybody calm down. Yeah, it was down. actually pretty funny when I arrived. Yeah. It was full pa- panic yeah. mode, but yeah. okay. Well, there you have that's, the voice of yeah. reason with regard to what happens um, over the next couple of days. Yeah. On the other hand, prepare to run for the hills because we could all die. Remember, if you've ever lived through an Oregon winter, there are times when they get this completely right. There's times when they get it completely wrong. And there's times when they kind of get somewhere in the middle. One thing I can guarantee is it will be overcovered. There will yeah. be people standing out on Barber Boulevard. And Nothing will be happening. <laughs> Nothing will be happening. But the possibility that a single flake might fall at any minute will be enough to give wall-to-wall coverage. That much I think we can predict. It's like being down in Los Angeles with the, uh, with the reporters holding their microphones to the gutter so you can hear the rain wishing by, you know? <laughs> it's like, come on, come on. Uh-oh. Nothing to see here.
Yeah. Well, thank you. Anyway, Clark. I just I, I did that. really bend out of shape about this. Yeah, I've noticed you know, you've been a little testy. Getting people all panicked little about something testy. that we have a kind of a struggle dealing with anyway is not helpful for anybody. See, I was all prepared to go buy something. I was going to need some kind Look, of a. You don't need my well, permission. I need to buy you can buy something. You can go buy a crate yeah, of water. Yeah, but I don't actually. <laughs> I don't actually need anything. Yeah. I don't need to go to Costco and buy a bunch of stuff. And I might get those the sleeve thing. It's an alternative to. Chains. I'm kind of that's piqued my curiosity. I'm not sure what that is. It's in all the time that I've been living here, we have needed chains on our freeways once. Yeah, I probably think of and once remember, or twice. They now salt problem areas in Oregon. Although this last snow we had last year, I was literally stuck. It took us hours to get me out, and I had an accident because I could not stop. The, I rear when you ran into the fire truck? I rear-ended a fire truck. There was plenty of distance between me and the fire truck. It's, well, well what that's happened not what was they say. A, t- a teenage kid in front of the fire truck uh, spun out of control, forcing the fire truck to slam on its brakes, which meant I didn't have enough time. You know, my brakes were on, but my car just kept sliding and before you know it, there was an accident. The nicest guys you ever, Clackamas County, nicest guys you ever want to meet. But anyway, I might get some kind of attraction device. Give me an excuse to buy something. All right, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you up. probably don't even need that. <laughs> yeah, I probably don't, but I'm, I'm intrigued. It's called, they're called sleeves. And yeah, they just I know. They, snap they on. have them in Europe. Do they work? Well, I guess Our panicked they do. co-worker insisted that I... Check into it, so I'll at least look at him. He We're lives gonna... in Salem, where they're not going to get much anything. of anything. That's true, but I get you. I bet you he won't be here on Monday, just yeah. in case. All right, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now you have all you need to know about the weather front that may or may not be moving in. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Jason Thompson, Executive Director of Portland Fellowship. Uh, They've just recently planned for the upcoming year, which also requires looking back over the past year. We'll talk with him about all of that and an event that's coming up to which you uh, are invited if this is an area of ministry that might be helpful to you and your congregation. Again, Jason Thompson, Executive Director of um, Portland Fellowship will join me shortly. Well, the Democratic Party uh, practically, almost literally, has its own Brett Kavanaugh case as a trio of scandals have left the government. Uh, The leadership in Virginia in chaos, although there doesn't seem to be much uh, movement there. In the latest bizarre twist, Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax has retained the same law firm that represented now Supreme Court Associate Justice Brett Kavanaugh when he was going through the confirmation process and faced decades old sexual misconduct allegations. Uh, meanwhile, the woman accusing Fairfax, uh, uh, Dr. Vanessa C. Tyson, meanwhile, has hired the attorney who represented Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, Kavanaugh's accuser, who alleged that uh, he'd thrown her onto a bed and muffled her screams at a high school party. Well, these latest developments with report that Tyson made her allegations against Fairfax known to Democratic Representative Bobby Scott of Virginia over a year ago. Uh, it's uh, It hasn't been confirmed thus far, but in addition, a new scandal Scandal in Virginia politics surfaced on Wednesday. The state attorney general, Mark Herring, who would be the third in line, posted a lengthy statement admitting that he, too, had donned blackface during a college party in 1980. He admitted donning a wig and brown makeup to look like a black rapper while at a party at the University of Virginia. Now, that may be shocking and surprising to many, but as an African-American woman, having lived through the 80s, it doesn't surprise me a bit. 
Uh, amid all this chaos, Democratic calls for the Virginia governor, uh, Ralph Northam, to resign over racist yearbook photos appears to have died down. Fairfax and Herring follow Northam in the line of succession to the governorship. If all three resigned, Kirk Cox, the conservative Republican speaker of the Virginia House of Delegates, would assume governorship and Democrats do not want to give up that power. So the offenses apparently aren't quite as bad as they were initially. Meanwhile, Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, on Wednesday was once again forced to apologize for claiming Native American ancestry on a 1986 registration card for the Texas State Bar and left the door open that there may be more documents out there with a similar claim. Political reported that Warren, who apologized last Friday to the Cherokee Nation for revealing the results of a DNA test last autumn, that showed just trace amounts of Native American lineage, was asked if there were or any other documents where she claimed the ancestry. So all I know is, she said, during this time period, this is consistent with what I did because it was based on my understanding from my family's stories. But family stories are not the same as tribal citizenship. Questions about Warren's heritage date to at least 2012, and the senator can't seem to put the controversy behind her. She's set to make a major announcement over the next couple of days, presumably to announce that she's going to Uh, jump in the race for her party's nomination for the White House. She had been uh, planning that formal launch uh, uh, for her presidential campaign on Saturday. We'll see if that uh, uh, remains the case. Well, one day after President Trump decried what he called the politics of of revenge rather and partisan investigations in his State of the Union address, Democratic House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff announced a new wide-ranging probe into the president's foreign business dealings and Russian election meddling. The move was fiercely condemned by the president who called the Schiff called Schiff rather a political hack on a partisan search and destroy mission. The Intelligence Committee on Wednesday also voted to hand over a slew of interview transcripts to special counsel Robert Mueller. Um, that were generated by the panel's previous Russia investigation, which was conducted under GOP leadership and found no evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government in the 2016 election. And President Trump wants more legal immigration. On Wednesday, he said he wants to increase the number of people who legally migrate to the United States because our unemployment numbers are so low. Speaking to reporters in the Oval Office, he said there is an influx of uh, influx rather of companies coming back into the country and that people legally coming into the U.S. are needed to fill those positions. We have seven car companies coming back in right now, and there's going to be a lot more. Uh, we've done really well with this, and we need people. He, presumably, if there are fewer people uh, who uh, require the social safety net and people are allowed to immigrate into the country legally, um, then those positions could be filled. Bob Massey, longtime legal analyst and host of the Bob Massey is Property Man on the Fox Business Channel, very popular, died Wednesday after a long battle with cancer. He was 67, a Las Vegas fixture known for his long lion-esque gray mane. Massey provided legal insight for more than 20 years and high-profile trials for, trials rather for the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, O.J. Simpson, Michael Jackson, and Timothy McVeigh. His talk radio program, Your Legal Hour, was a staple on KDOX 1280 AM for 20 years, and he'd hosted Bob Massey as the property man on Fox Business since 2015. Massey is survived by his wife, Lynn, sons, Dominic and Robert, daughter, Jenna, uh, two brothers and six grandchildren. On this day in 1964, 
before the Beatles arrive at New York's John F. Kennedy International Airport to begin their first American tour. And on this day in 1962, President John F. Kennedy imposes a full trade embargo on Cuba. And on this day in 1812, Charles Dickens is born in Landport, Portsmouth, England. And I'm glad he was. Well, New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez released a resolution that outlines the Green New Deal that's become a central part of the Democratic agenda. Now, keep in mind, it's not legislation. It is a resolution. The Green New Deal resolution calls for 10-year national mobilizations toward a series of goals aimed at fighting global warming, according to a copy of the bill obtained by NPR. A separate fact sheet claims the plan would mobilize every aspect of American society on a scale not seen since World War II. And all within a space of 10 years. Well, that includes getting all our energy needs from clean, renewable, zero emissions energy sources by dramatically expanding and upgrading existing renewable power sources. Ocasio-Cortez's non-binding resolution calls for a variety of social justice and welfare state goals, including a family-sustaining wage, adequate family and medical leave, paid vacations and retirement security, and high-quality health care benefits for Americans. The resolution calls for repairing historic oppression among certain groups, including minorities, immigrants, women, low-income workers, indigenous peoples, and youth collectively called frontline and vulnerable communities. The call to promote justice and and equity among those groups is seen as one of the Green New Deal's primary goals by its architects. The House resolution has more than 20 co-sponsors, according to a fact sheet, also obtained uh, of the bill. The ten, in 10 years, rather, we're trying to go carbon neutral, Ocasio-Cortez uh, told NPR uh, on Thursday on why the Green New Deal is called uh, calling for aggressive reducing of emissions. She described herself as a democratic socialist, unveiled her resolution today after weeks of fanfare and language tweaking to attract broader democratic support. The resolution, however, and any legislation stemming from it has zero chance of passing out of Congress or being signed into law by President Trump. Conservative groups and even some Democrats, including Nancy Pelosi, seen the Green New Deal as a grab bag of unrealistic socialist dreams. A six-page non-binding resolution marketed as a war plan proves Congressman uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez isn't prepared and hasn't done her homework. Dan Kish, distinguished senior fellow at the Institute for Energy Research, uh, is saying, running the world's greatest economy on unicorn farts and rainbow stew, all run by masterminds in Washington, D.C., is a fool's errand, he went on to say. Well, Democratic Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey will be releasing uh, companion legislation in the Senate, uh, which reportedly includes Democratic Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York as co-sponsors. Even the solutions that we have considered big and bold are nowhere near the scale of the actual problem of, that climate change presents to us, Ocasio-Cortez said on NPR. It could be part of a larger solution, but no one has actually scoped out what that larger solution would entail. And so that's really what we're trying to accomplish with the Green New Deal, she said. We'll tell you more details about that in the coming days. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Jason Thompson, Executive Director of Portland Fellowship, proclaiming freedom to the captive. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show about 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. Well, I am delighted to have my friend Jason Thompson with me in studio today. He is the Executive Director of 
uh, Portland Fellowship, which comprises uh, both staff and volunteers, many of whom complete the uh, Taking Back Ground program, and we'll talk more about that later. Uh, They join the leadership team in the form of teachers and worship leaders, prayer partners, small group leaders, and so on. Uh, But Jason, as you might recall, at 19, um, approached a crossroads in his life and made the decision that he uh, was going to rely on his um, uh, Christian upbringing. He made a difficult decision to follow God's word and sought help to overcome his struggle um, and to walk in freedom. Jason graduated from Multnomah Bible College in Portland. It was Bible College back then and uh, holds a master's degree in counseling from Western Seminary. He's an ordained minister. He and his wife have two amazing boys, Trevor and Cody. I know them. They are amazing. Jason produced The Map in 2002. It's an interactive CD-ROM for youth. And in 2008, he produced and launched um, uh, Reach Truth, or is that right? ReachTruth.com, an online support program for youth and young adults. In 2012, he produced Taking Back Ground Online and recently produced an online program for family and friends, Hope Group Online. He's currently collaborating to produce a new online video series to educate and support families uh, struggling with transgender issues. You have been a busy guy. It's been fun. I'm just grateful that you fun. have taken the time to, to be with here, us here today. Uh, thank you. Thanks thank so you much. for the invitation. Now, I don't want to assume everybody listening knows what Portland Fellowship is, so let's begin there. Uh, describe Portland Fellowship and to whom it, it ministers. Sure. Well, there are many organizations and even churches, church organizations, that uh, reach out to the LGBT com- community with a sense of affirmation, blessing, um, trying to integrate into culture and and what is missing in the conversation are, are Christians who believe that their sexuality is in conflict with their spirituality, their walk with the Lord. Uh, that voice is becoming less and less of a prominent one, mm-hmm. recognizing, listen, I got these feelings and desires. What do I do with them? Because I want to be obedient to what God has for me. But everyone's kind of saying, especially the world, celebrate it, enjoy it, endorse it, gay marriage, et cetera, et cetera. So where does somebody go to understand the deeper issues of why they're struggling, but more importantly, how to walk in obedience and transformation in Christ? That's what Portland Fellowship primarily is about. Christian ministry, helping men and women who are struggling with unwanted, and that's the key word, Mm -hmm. same-sex attractions and desires. And that that crosses now into issues of transgender, uh, pedophilia, uh, other sexual issues that that are life dominating in people's hearts and minds. And so the whole process is really putting things in right order, putting love in right order, attention and affection in right order, the way God intended. And to be able to walk that out, not in a sense of white knuckling it, but in a way of actual, real transformation as we believe the Holy Spirit can do in people's lives. Now, what you just described, I think it's important to emphasize that this is a process. This isn't a single event. This is a process. It's like the Christian life where you make a commitment daily to take up your cross and follow uh, Jesus. So over time, people uh, who are looking to God's word, coming together in community and being taught, have the opportunity to work through these issues. That's right. There are obviously there's years and years of forming lies and behaviors uh, that have reinforced those lies. So to walk through a process of transformation and healing uh, overnight is certainly not going to happen. It's almost a, a, like a, a child growing up and becoming mature. Is there a conversation, a prayer, or a light switch that turns an immature child into a mature person? No, of course not. It's a process of walking out your salvation, walking through a process of disciplining the mind and the heart, walking in that newness that God would have. But so many times there's very lim- limited resources to know how to do that, mm-hmm. or the support and encouragement, or even the idea that it's even possible. 
So for Portland Fellowship to come alongside in a very controversial topic and say, listen, not only do you not have to live according to these desires that are within you, but that there's actual resolution and freedom that comes in Christ with those things. Now, as I mentioned earlier, many of the staff and volunteers have experienced that kind of transformation. Um, You've experienced that transformation. And while we're living in a time when there's um, a challenge to the notion that it's even possible or that it should be uh, pursued uh, is the loudest voice being heard. How how is the ministry functioning in this cultural environment yeah. where you are most unwelcome? It's a great question. I honestly, uh, I'm surprised at times we exist, uh, not because of what God can't do or people actually coming to us because we actually have a full house, but the uh, the sensitivity in our culture is so great, as we know about all these other things that are currently going on in the last couple of days that uh, the idea of our existence would be an entire threat on on the way the culture has embraced this idea. So uh, without sounding weird or spiritual about it, it truly is the grace of God that has protected us and, and allowed us to continue to exist to minister to people. One other quick side note to that is we stand as a ministry that is not in opposition to political endeavors, public policy issues, or social issues, or anything that comes along those lines. We're not in opposition to the gay community. We are in, in, in a position where we invite people who already are convicted by the Spirit of God with this conflict between sexuality and faith to walk through that process. On top of that, the end goal is not to be heterosexual. That's not the goal, from gay to straight, as some people would say, but rather from brokenness and confusion to freedom in Christ, and, and a new a new identity, a new way of, build, of believing things about yourself, and a new way of acting. So the 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 issue is less about opposition of gay is, issues and more about um, the discipleship process of men and women in the faith to experience that freedom that finds that's found in Christ. I like the use of the word discipleship that best describes what Portland Fellowship does. Yeah. Now there are those who would argue that. The, the mere fact that that an individual would reject their uh, their attractions, their sexual attractions, and that there are people that would walk alongside them to uh, address these issues is a form of abuse. Yeah. Uh, and that's being challenged. And, and there's an effort to silence those efforts altogether. How do you respond to that? Well, I think that we need to recognize, first of all, that the ministry we're talking about is, are those who already have a conviction, have a foundation that, that is higher than our, than our moral fleshly desires. So in other words, we, but with that said is I think even the unchurched, the uh, person not believing in the Lord, would recognize that our desires are corrupt, even people who don't know God. Mm-hmm. In other words, if somebody has a desire to, to have sexual relations with someone that's not your wife, those desires are not going to be acted upon because they would destroy your life and your marriage. So we can agree to that. Mm-hmm. What if, and I'm not making a parallel between homosexual and pedophilia, but what if you have desires for children? Would it be reasonable and good to be able to say, let's examine that and walk in purity, surrender those things? It's the opposite of something that's destructive for you. In fact, it's life-giving and protection of other people. So we experience all the time. I dare anyone to kind of reflect back on their day-to-day and think, I had a desire that I'm glad I didn't act on. Mm. <laughs> it's like we need to surrender our desires. When, As believers, though, it's a beautiful thing to say when Jesus has come and died to yourself. That's what baptism is, if you will to die to ourselves and live in Christ, to live according to his principles. When we do that, we are truly blessed in ways that, that we would never have guessed. 
that God blesses our lives, transforms our lives, gives us hope and peace, even in the midst of trials and difficulties. So, so our desires should not be the thing that leads us. It just shouldn't. It will, it will actually destroy you, whether you're, whether you're a Christian or not. It's not a good thing to just go with your desires. Yeah, yeah, just give in to whatever uh, yeah, crosses right. your mind. That's terrible. Now, there's been a, a, a very vigorous campaign to paint all organizations that minister to or counsel individuals who are dissatisfied with their same-sex attraction or other areas of sexual brokenness um, and uh, to paint it with a a brush of, as I mentioned, abuse. Um, And that has permeated the culture. There have been movies, there have been articles, the mainstream media has carried that message. How has that challenged you and and similar organizations to continue in this ministry? And do you anticipate at some point in the future that there's a threat to your right to exist? Yeah as a ministry of the gospel. Yeah, because it's conflated. Boy Erased is a a movie I think you're referring to. Uh, Even the gay community, even people who understand what we do, understands and believes and knows factually that 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 movie was embellished, extremely embellished. And so the things that happen that the world may communicate what we do, like electroshock therapy or shame techniques or some kind of weird, uh, whatever weird things that go on, um, they simply don't exist. So part of our communication is recognizing, A, if there are ministries slash organizations that do any of those kind of things, anything that's outside of God's will that shames people, that ridicules them, that puts them in a nuisance of captivity, I'm highly against, highly against. So I'm not so I'm not one that so, so quickly believes in reparative therapy and all reparative therapy is fine. It's like, no, no, no I'm going to examine that. Mm-hmm. What's your intention? What's your end goal? Uh, for the people who are trying to make people heterosexual, because that's the better state to be, I think in and of itself is wrong. There are lots of dysfunctional heterosexuals who don't know Jesus. So being heterosexual is not a goal. That's ridiculous as well. But rather, so it's a, an ongoing communication against those things that say, this is what we do. We're, we're, we're shaming people. We're causing people to, to kill themselves because they're denying themselves. Again, in Christ, Jesus literally says, you must do not deny yourself. Yes, that's mm-hmm. what you are to do. But for something so much greater, a huge and wonderful blessing to be had by the Lord. And so it's an ongoing process of recognizing that God has something good and that we have to combat the lies that are out there, but stay stay strong in the truth of God. We're talking with Jason Thompson, Executive Director of Portland Fellowship. We'll give you more information about how to connect with Portland Fellowship if you're a church or an individual looking for help. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. 52 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Jason Thompson, Executive Director of Portland Fellowship. I was reading your February uh, 2019 newsletter. I read it every time that it, it comes awesome. out. And uh, you made reference to the annual planning meeting, at which uh, time you not only look forward, but you also look back at uh, and reflected on the amazing things that God has allowed you to accomplish throughout the previous year. Can you talk a little bit about last year, and then maybe we can look ahead to this coming year? Yeah, we took a, a, a stab at, as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, uh, all these online programs that we've done. But some of them have been done like 15 years ago, so they just needed a bit of a facelift. Mm-hmm. And so we, we did spend time on that. And, and of course, we, we have a facility, a turn-of-the-century facility off of about 20th and Hawthorne. It needed a lot of attention, and so we got to put some efforts into creating a great courtyard for people to go sit and hang out. So slightly off the, the subject of ministry, but it's all 
being good stewards of what God has given us. Yeah. And, and so it's been a joy to work on that. Um, and so we, we're hoping to, to continue to do more of the online stuff, uh, but we wanted to revamp, and we did revamp our Taking Back Ground program. Uh, for your uh, audience, We our program is two years long, and that hadn't been updated for many years as well. And so uh, it, it really is 42 lessons of just simple, deep discipleship for those struggling with relational and sexual brokenness. So although the, the clientele, if you will, are people dealing with same-sex attraction— there are people who have come through the program that are just blessed by the material because it's mm-hmm. just deepening their relationship with God and with others, dealing with the dysfunctions of one's heart and mind, and again, putting things in right order. So it was great last year to refine that program, some online programs, some facility issues. It's been great. God's provided for all of it. So it's just been great. To do. Mm. Well, and I, uh, as I mentioned, I read the newsletter. Does it come out every month? Every month. Yeah, every yep. month. And I so enjoy the newsletter. This was kind of a review of the year and looking uh, back, or rather looking forward. But there's usually a testimony, and I'm always so mm-hmm. encouraged and inspired by the ministry and by folks whose lives are being transformed. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, and it just confirms what we know to be true about God in every other area of life. It's also true in this area as well. So I find it inspiring and encouraging, and I have such high regard and respect for you and Thank your you. team. Thank um, you. you work so much under the radar and you're doing uh, really difficult things in a very challenging environment. And most of us are completely unaware that you're helping to transform the lives of our sons and daughters and neighbors and people who really want to follow Christ, but need some help. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible to be on the front lines of, even though, like you said, we don't do a whole lot of advertisement. We've tried in the past. It kind of falls flat. It's like people just get in our face about it. But that the Holy Spirit is still moving in people's lives, and so our programs are filled. It's like in a day and age when there's so many pro-gay churches, you can get married, uh, it's a taboo to even do this type of thing. You would think we would be out of business, so to speak, like a church can be out of business. But uh, on the contrary, God is still working in the hearts of, the, of, his, of his children, men and women who are broken in this area, and, and they keep coming. In fact, we, we had to turn two people away because we just have li- literally no room in our, mm. our program this, this time around. Uh, so they'll come in in a month. But um, anyway, so it's it's a fascinating thing to see God continue to do this transforming work in people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what happens when the phone rings and somebody on the other end says, you know, I've came, I've come to faith in Christ. I'm really struggling with same-sex attraction. Can you help me? What happens from that point moving forward? Yeah, the first thing we do is to get to know them personally. And so that requires an intake. I mean, it sounds kind of formal, but it's really ultimately about making sure this is not only a good fit for, for them, but for us to have them in the program. Uh, some people need to deal with other deeper issues first before going through a discipleship program like the, uh, alcohol and drug and maybe even sexual mm-hmm. addiction issues. Um, or, or they're not really there for their own, their own heart. They're there because mom, dad want them there. Their spouse wants them there. Uh, and, and we absolutely require the individual having to have their own desire to walk through this process. And I joke, not everybody wants it 100%. You know, it's like wants to do that every Tuesday night. But I joke that they need at least 51%. Yeah, <laughs> they need, yeah. well, just slightly over the edge that, yes, this is what I want. Once someone comes into the program, uh, the, the, unless unless something big happens where they have to move, they stay. Because it's a powerful night. In fact, the report is, and this was me almost 30 years ago, I couldn't wait for Tuesday night. Because it was just speaking life into an area of deep darkness and and confusion, and it, each week it would just be affirmation of God's presence and His transforming work. As you said before, as slow as it was, and it was slow, there was no light switch, no magical prayer. 
but an ongoing process of surrender that God began to transform my life and the lives that come there. And while this is a, a discipleship program that focuses primarily on uh, sexual um, dysfunction, if you will, uh, th- what you described is the process of discipleship that all of us uh, at least should uh, be a part of, should be going through as we are walking out our faith. Um, so this is not a, this is not unusual for men and women of faith. This is a program that that specifically deals with um, some issues. But this is a you know one of the things I found is people that I know who have gone through the program they know the gospel, they know the grace of God. Yeah. There is a depth that uh, that comes out of that two year program that I oftentimes envy. Uh, because when you've pressed into God in that way and yeah. recognize your deep need for him, when you come out the other end, there, there's something special there. Yeah, it's fascinating. People can go to church, and not every church is like this, but you can go and put on your Sunday best, sing your hymns, smile in the entryway, and leave. When you walk through the doors of Portland Fellowship, by the very nature of walking the doors, you're kind of stripped bare. There's this humility, this sense of, I need, and I'm and I'm desperate for the Lord to do something in my heart. And so in a way, I do wish church at times on Sunday mm-hmm. morning was a little bit more like that, where it's like we come in and we're, we're in need of him. All of us have fallen short of the glory That's of God, right. not just the people dealing with SSA and transgendered issues, of course. And like you said, everyone could could use a discipleship process. And I'm speaking even beyond just a simple Bible study. I go through Bible studies. They're great and absolutely needed. And there's a part of recognizing relational wounds and deficits that need attention, need care, need for uh, walking through forgiveness and, and newness and thinking. And there's not many options out there like that unless you're dealing with something deep and, and powerful in your life that forces you to go to yeah. something like that. Yeah. Well, I want to make sure that our listeners know how to connect with Portland Fellowship. Uh, for example, if they'd like to get the newsletter yeah. or if they're interested in uh, some of the, the programs that are available. I, I wanted to mention the upcoming God's Voice Conference. That's going to be in Oklahoma City. Uh, but there are other opportunities for believers to come together around these issues. What can you give our listeners to, that's tangible they can take with yeah, them? Yeah, the real simple thing is a website, portlandfellowship.com. Every information, all the information, all the newsletters are on there. I would encourage people to sign up and create an account that they can get the newsletters and, and different resources that are out there. Uh, in very quick brief, there are into the church environment, very different ways of communicating this issue. And so we've actually created a single-page document that helps clarify everything from the pro-gay stance to the, to the group that says it's okay to have the identity to another group that says the best you can do is, is hold on to God's grace, but don't take the identity. And then the fourth column is the transformational message of hope and healing. And this kind of lists how those differing, differing views uh, disagree and agree with each other along the route. It'll really help sort it out because at the bottom of that list it shows the authors and speakers that correspond to those. Very so helpful. You, yeah, exactly. So you so you know what you're reading. It's like if you want to read a pro-gay stand, that's what it is. But don't get confused. This isn't biblical message, even though they may say so. Uh, and if you want to hear a transformational message, which is very rare, that God heals and transforms and desires, meets the desires of our heart, uh, that would be the rebuild column. So portlandfellowship.com, you can find that right there on the website. Well, Jason, once again, I want to thank you for your faithfulness in serving in this ministry and for talking with us today. Thank Appreciate you. My you. pleasure. Thank you. All right. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. Well, Senator Elizabeth Warren is... Um, 
aggressively pushing a new wealth tax, which uh, she dubbed the ultra-millionaire tax. Clark and I don't have to worry about that since neither of us are ultra-millionaires. Anyway, this is ahead of the weekend's formal presidential campaign launch we're expecting sometime on Saturday. Um, But she keeps running into the same question from critics. Is it even constitutional? Well, if the Massachusetts Democrats' proposal were to become law, it would almost certainly face a court challenge, thanks to the fact that uh, it's a tax on wealth as opposed to a tax on income. Well, specifically, Warren has proposed an annual 2% tax on every dollar of net worth above $50 million and a 3% tax on every dollar of net worth above $1 billion. Well, billionaire former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg, a likely opponent to her uh, uh, proposal in the crowded Democratic 2020 uh, presidential race, he may also be throwing his hat in, has said of her proposal, the Constitution lets you impose income taxes only, so I think it's unconstitutional. Well, she fired back that billionaires like him and possibly independent candidate Howard Schultz want to keep a rigged system in place that benefits only them and their buddies, not on my watch. Well, it doesn't answer the question of whether or not it's constitutional, but Warren has offered two letters from 17 law professors defending the constitutionality of the proposed tax. The issue comes down to the type of tax in question. The levy could be considered a direct tax imposed on people or an ownership of property as opposed to an indirect tax on the use of property, such as buying, selling, or transferring. If that's the case, then Warren would run into a tricky issue of what they call apportionment, taxing residents directly based on uh, the state they live in. So uh, I guess the bottom line is if she's successful and it's doubtful given the fact that the uh, Republicans still hold the majority in the Senate and the president would not sign such a wealth tax, uh, if she's successful, um, there will be a legal challenge to um, that tax, whatever form ultimately it takes. So as I mentioned earlier, the U.S. House Ways and Means Committee is set to go after the president's IRS tax returns. Uh, The first thing that I'm sure of is that the Democratic Party majority in the U.S. House uh, will be taking steps to obtain the Republican uh, uh, Party, uh, the Republican president, rather, Donald Trump's past IRS tax returns as soon as possible, starting in February of 2019. This is the president's Achilles heel, which means there's no way that uh, he and his um, supporters won't throw up roadblocks to bar Democrats from having access to his tax returns. Now, returns that predate his uh, election, I'm not sure those are fair game, or for that matter, if any of them are. The IRS has access to uh, those things. He has to file some kinds of reports that would provide much of the same information. The FBI also reviews some of that information. So it'll be interesting to see what happens, but Um, This is what uh, apparently uh, they're going to be going after. Well, on the 7th of this month, what is today? Well, I guess that is today. Jacob Pramuk and Tucker Higgins of CNBC uh, CNBC penned a report. House Democrats schedule a hearing in a big formal set toward focusing on Trump's taxes. And their bullet points were simply Representative John Lewis, a Georgia Democrat and chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee's Oversight Subcommittee, announced the event will take place. It was today. The hearing in front of the Democratic panel is called Legislative Proposals and Tax Law Related to Presidential and Vice Presidential Tax Returns. Well, the House Committee will hold a hearing next week on presidential tax returns as Democrats clamor for access to the president's elusive financial information. Now, a lot of his financial information is uh, available in other forms, 
Um, but that apparently is not satisfactory. And it's not clear to me if members of the House have access to what the FBI and the IRS already have. Representative John Lewis, a Georgia Democrat and chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee Oversight Subcommittee, announced the event will take place. The hearing in front of the Democratic-led panel is called the Legislative Proposals and Tax Law Related to Presidential and Vice Presidential Tax Returns. It marks the new Democratic House majority's first formal steps on the path to focusing on Trump's tax returns. The president refused to release the documents during the 2016 campaign in a break with decades of precedent. It's not required. It's been uh, voluntarily given up. This was a deviation from that practice. The party's left wing has agitated for Ways and Means Committee Chairman Representative Richard Neal out of Massachusetts to take swifter action to get access to Trump's financial information. But Neal has said he is being cautious. This is the beginning of a court case. I think the idea here is to avoid the emotion and of the moment and make sure that the product stands up under critical analysis, he said, and it will. Well, Democrats hope the returns can show whether the president's decision in office, decisions rather in office, have affected his sprawling holdings. They're also seeking more information about uh, any financial connections to Russia. On the second of this month, Louis uh, Jacobson of PolitiFact penned the following analysis. Can House Democrats release Donald Trump's tax returns? Asking the question, how can the House secure an individual's tax returns? Well, the tension is focused on a provision of the law known as 26 U.S. Code 6103. This allows the chairman of the Tax Writing House Ways and Means Committee, among other senior lawmakers, to seek returns by sending a written request to the Treasury Secretary, who, again, has that information. Officially, the decision to release the returns would be made by the Treasury Secretary, not the White House, although it's not difficult to imagine presidential pressure being exerted on the secretary to refuse. So this round has begun. It's not surprising. We anticipated this would happen. The Democrats have said that's what they intend to do. We'll see whether or not they are successful at it. Well, Michael Goodwin made the point that there was some real news about Hillary Clinton that was lost because there were so many other things going on. Um, Most people didn't even notice. Um, These are very heady days for Democrats and Republicans. Speaker Nancy Pelosi is uh, fixing her power in the House. State legislatures are sweeping away abortion boundaries each day, brings a new entry into the 2020 presidential sweepstakes. So there's a lot going on. Far-left newcomers are demanding massive tax hikes on the wealthy, free health care for all, and an end to fossil fuels. Some are even attacking America's Judeo-Christian heritage. Yet, perhaps the single biggest development of recent days barely made the news. And that is Hillary Clinton's political career is over, kaput, finished. Well, how do you know that? Well, she's not running for president. That's a quote from John Podesta, the chairman of her 2016 campaign, speaking on CNN. He dismissed an earlier report that she was considering a run as media catnip, adding uh, for emphasis, I take her at her word. She's not running for president. Now, I'm not sure we can ever take a politician at their word when it comes to whether or not they're going to run for office. Um, But this was a pretty big statement from Podesta. Now, she uh, was heard saying that, you know, I haven't I haven't ruled out the possibility. And again, catnip, media catnip is how he's describing it. But that's a pretty big deal. If, in fact, Hillary Clinton has ended her political career, that's it. Now, taking Clinton at her word is the definition of um, dicey, according to Michael Goodwin, who's reflecting on this very same thing. But this time is different because it's not as if she has uh, much choice. Clinton quit in 2020 uh, before she was fired. Well, again, big news. Podesta confirmed. But you never know what might happen. And, of course, we know Uncle Joe is still considering a run. And uh, 
I think people are waiting to find out if, in fact, he throws his hat into the ring. We, of course, have been watching what's uh, happened in New York, what nearly happened in the state of Virginia with regard to late-term abortions. But Massachusetts Democrats are pushing a sweeping bill to allow more third-trimester abortions, meaning the Commonwealth would join New York in having some of the loosest restrictions in the country. Massachusetts law currently bans abortions after 24 weeks of pregnancy, except if a woman's pregnancy endangers her life or if continuing the pregnancy would... uh, Uh, risk grave impairment of her physical or mental health. That's a quote from their law. The Remove Obstacles and Expand Abortion Access Act, or Roe Act as they call it, would loosen those restrictions by dropping the grave impairment language and allowing abortions after 24 weeks to protect the mother's physical or mental health. And of course, mental health in these cases, as it is related to abortion, is always so broadly defined that essentially a preference is the same as a mental health issue or in cases of lethal uh, fetal anomalies and where the fetus is incompatible with sustained life outside the womb. The bill would give doctors much more latitude in deciding to conduct abortions and would delete the section in current Massachusetts law that requires doctors to take all reasonable steps to preserve the life and health of the aborted child, including having life-supporting equipment in the room. It would also repeal existing law that requires a minor to get her parents' consent before an abortion. The problem is um, uh, with Democrats' calls for Ralph Natham's resignation um, should have been on this issue, but in fact it ended up being something else conveniently when we come back we'll talk about new mexico their abortion bill is called the most extreme in the nation 16 minutes after five o'clock you're listening to the georgine rice show you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq 22 minutes after five o'clock you're listening to the georgine rice show on this thursday afternoon as we anticipate what could be some inclement weather more on that later in the program Well, following the New York abortion law celebrated by Governor Andrew Cuomo, Vermont is pushing a right to abortion bill that goes even further. Opponents of the new abortion bill in New Mexico say a proposal in that state would be the most extreme bill in the nation due to the far reaching changes. Well, advocates of the abortion bill that decriminalizes abortion in the state say uh, it's needed uh, in case Roe versus Wade is overturned. Now, it hasn't been overturned, but they're anticipating that possibility. But pro-life supporters say it allows abortion on demand for any reason, taking away parental notification for minors and conscience protections from the state law. This bill is a Trojan horse backed by the National Abortion Lobby in order to establish abortion as a human right by removing so-called religious refusals and turn every hospital, every clinic, every doctor's office into an abortion clinic or referral center. Eliza Martinez, executive director of the New Mexico Alliance for Life, says, well, Representative Joanne Ferrari, a Democrat and co-sponsor of the bill, said it simply removes an antiquated law that criminalizes health care. But opponents of the bill argue that beyond making abortion legal all nine months of pregnancy, it also forces medical professionals to perform abortions against their will. House Bill 51 is the most extreme bill in the nation because it keeps elective abortion up to birth and also seeks to force medical professionals to participate in the practice by stripping away explicit conscience procedures or rather protections from the current statute. 
Well, the proposed bill would uh, scrap into uh, would uh, scrap rather this language from state law. Criminal abortion consists of administering to any pregnant woman any medicine, drug, or other substance, or using any method or means whereby an untimely termination of her pregnancy is produced or attempted to be produced, with the intent to destroy the fetus. And the termination is not justified medical uh, justified medical termination. Whoever commits criminal abortion is guilty of a fourth degree. Felony. Whoever commits criminal abortion, which results in the death of the woman, is guilty of second degree felony. Well, Ferrari said that the abortions would be uh, would be able to uh, uh, be performed under this bill through all nine months, even if the mother and the baby are healthy because abortion is provided for health care. And the bill is intended to keep abortion safe and legal. And it's only half true. It may be legal, but it's not safe or at least one of the patients. Six Democrats voted against the bill, but it passed in the House. And Democratic New Mexico Governor Michelle Grisham has vowed to sign it uh, if it passes in the state Senate. On Tuesday night, the president urged Congress to pass legislation to prohibit the late-term abortion of children who can feel pain in their mother's womb during the State of the Union address. Other states that are considering or have considered similar legislation expanding abortion access include Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Washington. We'll continue to follow the development of those very things. Well, in a speech at the National Prayer Breakfast earlier today, the president said that the United States must build a culture that cherishes um, uh, dignity and sanctity of innocent human lives. As part of our commitment to building a just and loving society, we must build a culture that cherishes uh, both. All children born and unborn are made in the holy image of God. Every life is sacred and every soul is precious gift from heaven. As the Lord says in Jeremiah, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you before you were born. I set you apart. The president speaking at the national prayer breakfast. He also pledged to protect the country's long and proud tradition of faith-based adoption. My administration is working to make sure that faith-based adoption agencies are able to help vulnerable children find their forever families while following their deeply held beliefs. There's currently a, a major challenge going on in several states across the fruited plain that uh, have either shut down or uh, severely limited the work of these agencies that uh, place children according to their core beliefs. The president also said he, his administration is speaking out against religious persecution around the world, against, uh, including against religious minorities, Christians, and the Jewish community. He welcomed Pastor Andrew Brunson to the National Prayer Breakfast. He, of course, was uh, had been jailed for years in Turkey. My administration is also continuing to fight for American hostages who have been imprisoned overseas for their religious beliefs. Last October, we reached an agreement with Turkey to release Pastor Brunson, who is now free and joins us here this morning. He was there for a a long time before I got there. He said, uh, you got to let him out. And they let him out. It was a miracle. The president went on to say, taking uh, taking full credit. Well, the president also stumbled through uh, the prayer breakfast speech to evangelicals as he celebrated the abolition of civil rights and praised Karen Pence for teaching at uh, the anti-gay school while Pelosi cringed. Well, there were a few missteps along the way, uh, but the president was present and the president uh, did speak. He did also pledge at the national uh, prayer breakfast, I will never let you down, speaking to the assembled uh, evangelicals and religious leaders there. Well, after receiving a significant backlash for canceling a speech from conservative commentator Ben Shapiro, Grand Canyon University, as I mentioned yesterday, decided to reverse its decision with one major caveat. Young America's Foundation, the organization through which Shapiro speaks, cannot be involved. 
The university is extending an official invitation directly to Mr. Shapiro and his organization in conjunction with the GCU YAF chapter students to organize an event where he would be he would come to campus rather and present to interested students. The spokesman Bob Romantic said in a statement. Uh, GCU's administration is not interested in working with YAF's national office as a result of its continued disparagement of the university, the false and misleading statements it has made, and its express strategy to use media pressure to achieve its goals. Well, as a result of kicking YAF out of the conversation, uh, the editor-in-chief of uh, The Daily Wire um, and host of The Ben Shapiro Show declined... um, the offer in a tweet, I have worked with YAF, Young America's Foundation, and YAF students for years, Shapiro wrote on Wednesday. I will not go around the hardworking, dedicated YAF students at GCU. I'll go to GCU when YAF brings me to the university. Well, the Christian University's administration went back and forth with YAF in a contentious, days-long process. Uh, GCU says it initially denied Shapiro because a number of students on campus expressed their concern that this speaker would bring a feeling of divisiveness to the campus based on some of his previous speaking appearances. But after receiving backlash, the school met with the uh, YAF spokesman, Spencer Brown, and students in the school's chapter on Monday. But because they couldn't agree on a joint statement, they decided to um, boot out YAF from the process. GCU administrators uh, claim to support conservatives, but at every turn they have attempted to shame, bully, and intimidate the young people working hard to bring Ben Shapiro to campus, uh, Brown said in a statement on Wednesday. Well, the school reiterated that the decision had nothing to do with Shapiro's ideology, although clearly it did, uh, which aligns with the openly um, uh, conservative institution. GCU added the conservative dialogue with Continue on campus, whether Mr. Shapiro decides to accept our invitation or not. And clearly he has decided, aside from YAF, he will not. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, if, um, if repentance earns you scorn, then why repent? Better to double down on wrongdoing. Well, so says Ben Shapiro in responding to a world without forgiveness, a return to a sort of paganism where forgiveness is not an issue. Now, you don't think about the influence of Christianity and the uh, the fact of redemption and forgiveness being a major, a central f- a feature of the Christian faith. But as Ben Shapiro points out, we are moving away from a, a Judeo-Christian uh, focus to one in which repentance is no longer apparently um, the thing. Well, the story of Western religion, he writes, is a story of redemption, of human beings sinning and then seeking redemption and repentance. Every year, Jewish congregations attend Yom Kippur services where they confess their sins before God and pledge not to sin again. They also ask for forgiveness from those they have harmed. Catholics and Protestants believe similarly. Repentance is a key element in bringing man closer to God and in self-betterment more generally and in Um, living in community. Well, as the West abandons religion, then it's no surprise to see the West returning to a pagan standard of justice, a standard by which repentance is impossible and by which we must assume the worst about everyone else. How else should we read the national reaction to the case of Virginia Governor Ralph Northam and the international reaction to actor Liam Neeson? Northam, you recall, He stated last week that he stood in favor of a law that would essentially allow abortion on demand to the point of um, of birth. Um, 
dilation during labor, and even after the baby has been delivered, a position indistinguishable from infanticide. Now, one of the things that's absolutely fascinating to me is something that he did some 30 years ago in applying makeup to his face has garnered all the attention and very little attention has been given. In fact, most of the the networks and cable news stations didn't even cover uh, the position that he announced rather brazenly and then doubled down on having to do with infanticide. Well, um, Shapiro goes on by pointing out, for this Democrat, didn't bat an eye. Then it came out that Northam's medical school yearbook page carried a picture of two men, one dressed as a member of the Ku Klux Klan, the other in blackface. The world caved in on Northam with members of his of both parties demanding his resignation. And by the way, he apparently had earned the nickname Coon Man. So any denials about his involvement or understanding or so on, I suppose, rings a bit hollow. Well, Northam did something reprehensible 34 years ago. He now says, notwithstanding his initial apology, that he is not actually in the yearbook photo. That reprehensible thing is racially insensitive, at least racist at most. Now, it's not surprising to me at all that 30 years ago in Virginia that this was more commonplace than we'd like to uh, admit. Uh, As Robert A. George points out, lots of people are racially insensitive out of ignorance and stupidity rather than outright bigotry. Now, given the uh, stature and status of this 25-year-old at the time that this controversy took place, I wouldn't necessarily say it was ignorance and stupidity out of Uh, In this case, I would say it was uh, certainly culturally acceptable and far more common uh, than we think. But he then spent 30 years living a professionally and personally meritorious life on racial issues. Should we disregard his entire life's record because of a racist picture from the Reagan era? And then, of course, there have been images of all kinds of very popular celebrities these days who have done essentially the same thing. Now, some would say, oh, because Jimmy Kimmel did it and he really loved the guy he was mimicking, then it's okay. On the other hand, in different circumstances, it may not have been. Uh, Anyway, perhaps Northam should be ousted for botching his apology. That's plausible. But it's difficult to believe that even if he had given a prompt, sincere apology, it would have been enough for those calling for his head. Similarly, actor Liam Neeson did an interview this week with The Independent in the UK in which he discussed his revenge-seeking character from his new film. There's something primal. God forbid you've ever had a member of your family hurt under criminal conditions, Neeson said. I'll tell you a story. This is true. He then explained that a close friend had been raped. I asked, did she know who it was? No. What color were they? The questioner asked. She did uh, say that it was a black person. I went up and down areas with a kosh, she says, hoping I'd um, uh, approach somebody. I'm ashamed to say that. Uh, I did it for a week, hoping some, these gestured um, air quotes with his uh, fingers, black person, he used an expletive, uh, would come out of a pub and have to go um, have a go at me about something, you know, so that I could kill him. He then stated ruefully, it was horrible, horrible when I think back uh, that I did that. And I've never admitted that. And I'm saying it to a journalist. God forbid. It's awful. But I did learn a lesson from it when I eventually thought, what uh, what are you doing And again, his language a little saltier. Well, this is a story about a man thinking of doing something completely evil, dealing with his own demons in the shadow of an evil crime. And it's a story of a man realizing that his demons are indeed evil and that he must fight them. Yet Neeson was immediately hit with a tsunami of outrage, including broad-based attempts to label him a racist. Now, his response certainly was that is repentance uh, to be regarded in this uh, in this case, repentance is simply not possible in our outrage 
culture. And there are serious and dire consequences when that's the case. Now, normally when people do something in their youth of which they are ashamed, there are three possible responses. First, they can seek the first opportunity to publicly confess their sins. This is the Barack Obama option. In his memoir, Dreams from My Father, he confessed to using cocaine in high school, thereby taking the air out of any scoop about the issue. Such confessions may be sincere or they may be cynical attempts to um, inoculate one um, one's record of scrutiny. Second, they can do the human thing, cringe inside, hope that nobody remembers or was affected by their sin and move on. They may repent to God and pledge themselves to better behavior. When reminded of their sin, they can immediately apologize. This is the option most commonly utilized by non-politicians whose lives are not subject to public scrutiny and who have no plans to make them so. Third, they can double down on their original sin. Well, here's the problem. Right now, there's no incentive to people to engage in the second option, which means that either they'll preemptively confess or they will double down. And if, like Liam Neeson, their uh, preemptive confession is deemed evidence of evil, they're pretty much sunk. Uh, which means that increasingly the only people who will be able to engage in public life are those with no shame or those who are entirely pure. And no one, of course, is entirely pure. You may not be guilty of that particular sin, but there are others who may find you out. A world with no mercy or grace is an ugly world indeed. And we're building that world for ourselves brick by brick, a world without Forgiveness. And then I appreciated that Cultural Beat had this to say on the subject. The new morality of the left has little room for mercy and none for forgiveness. Any indiscretion of its hallowed and ever-evolving morality, no matter how far back in the past it may have occurred, is met only with howls of rage by a woke mob demanding its pound of flesh. This new morality finds no virtue in honesty or self-disclosure of one's past indiscretions. Instead, any wrong think or... Uh, is uh, is greeted by demands that the individual be destroyed as a lesson to anyone else, lest they dare venture outside the realm of leftist dogma. Case in point, the recent admission by actor Liam Neeson, which I've already uh, explained, um, some of the calls were for him to be simply put to death. Well, Neeson also expressed remorse and regret for his thoughts and actions at that time, pointing out that it was horrible. Instead of receiving commendations for being honest about the ugliness of his past thoughts and expressing sorrow for it, social media instead piled on him for being a racist. It is unforgivable sin, after all. There was no consideration for Neeson expressing that he used to think one way and saw the error of it and changed. Nope, it's too late. Once a racist, always a racist. And this same judgment uh, mindset, this judgmental mindset, is being applied across in all intersectional victim classes. For example, this year, Academy Awards show will be hostless after actor and comedian Kevin Hart stepped down from hosting. Following blowback, he received over disparaging comments he had made about homosexuality in the past. Hart noted that he had repeatedly apologized for his past comments. Uh, If you um, want to search my history or past and anger yourself with what you find, that is fine with me. I'm almost 40 years old and I'm in love with the man that I have become. If you want to hold people in a position where they always have, have to justify or explain their past, I'm the wrong guy. Well, as are millions and millions of Americans, nothing less than perpetual apologizing and groveling will be accepted by the social justice warriors of today. And even then, one's past cannot be truly forgiven or forgotten. This is the culture that we are uh, seeing develop before our eyes. And it also represents our retreat from a, uh, a religious core 
that emphasizes forgiveness and mercy. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Um, I'll wait till the next segment. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, maybe you've seen a celebrity, a pastor, politician, or friend with a red X on their hand and wondered, what on earth is that about? Well, the red X is part of the End It movement to shine a light on modern-day slavery. And uh, today marks the seventh annual Shine a Light on Slavery Day, where hundreds of thousands of people use their voice and platform to speak for those in slavery who can't speak for themselves. Modern slavery is uh, a vast and uh, as brutal as it has ever been. But one thing is new. We now know how to stop it for good, according to International Justice Mission CEO and keynote speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast, which took place earlier today, speaking to an audience this morning. Haugen wearing a red X uh, pin pointed to the end it movement, stating uh, rather started by students at Passion Conference some seven years ago. Um. You're truly doing the Lord's work, President Trump. And at the breakfast uh, about uh, which uh, Haugen was uh, speaking, he said rescuing people from the bondage of human trafficking. Uh, And as you know, our administration is doing everything we can to make your work uh, easier. Together, we will end the scourge of modern day slavery. So if you see that symbol on the hands of anyone, particularly today, but I suppose at any time, that's what that means. A way of sort of evangelizing the message. Meanwhile, according to a new survey, millennials used to be the group that churches and ministries were angling to evangelize. Now all grown up and poised to overtake baby boomers as the largest generation, they're the ones doing the evangelizing. At least they should or could be. New research from Barna Group and the creators of the Alpha Course offer some disappointing news regarding the 20-somethings and 30-somethings now on deck to carry on the faith. Nearly half, or 47% of practicing Christian millennials, churchgoers who consider religion an important part of their lives or relationship with Jesus is a better way of putting it, believe that evangelism is wrong. Um, they're more than twice as likely as their parents and grandparents, boomers and elders, respectively, to say that it's wrong to share one's personal belief with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Now, considering what's at stake, what the scriptures say we ought to do in carrying out the Great Commission and and so on, this is um, not just disappointing, but but, but surprising. The recent Barna release found that despite the reticence around the practice, millennials consider themselves good evangelists and still see themselves as representatives of their faith. Apparently they're billboards, but they're not um, really ambassadors. Nearly all practicing Christian millennials, 96 percent, said witnessing for Jesus is part of being a, a Christian. And they were more likely than any other generation to say that they are, uh, were gifted at sharing their faith. And Barna previously found that millennials who identify as born again were the most likely age group to share their faith and that uh, their evangelism habits um, were growing while other generations were dropping. In 2013, two thirds of millennials said that they had presented the gospel to someone within the past year compared to half of born again Christians in general. Additionally, practicing um, Christian millennials have the strongest beliefs in the Bible and read it more than any other generation. 87% do so multiple times a week, according to a 2016 Barna survey on behalf of the American Bible Society. So what's behind the belief that evangelism is wrong? 
Well, Barna President David Kinnaman, he points to a rising cultural expectation against uh, judging personal choices. Practicing Christian millennials were twice as likely as Gen X and four times as likely as boomers and elders to agree that uh, with a statement, if someone disagrees with you, it means they're judging you. Well, cultivating deep, steady, resilient Christian conviction is difficult in a world of you do you and don't criticize anyone's life choices and uh, emotivism. Uh, the feel-first uh, priority that our culture makes a way of life, Kinnaman uh, pointed out. As much as ever, evangelism isn't just about saving the unsaved, but reminding ourselves that the, this stuff matters, that the Bible is trustworthy, and that Jesus changes everything. Well, several evangelicals' reactions uh, to the Barna release pointed to the need for better Christian formation for younger churchgoers. I'm a millennial, and this is pure evidence of the failure of the church to prepare youths to understand faith, speak out, tweeted uh, Billy Hollowell. Beyond that, it's also a result of the cultural crisis of secularism bombarding us at every turn. You can't pin the belief that evangelism is wrong on Facebook, distraction, disenchantment, or recession, uh, he wrote, wrote Samuel James, rather, a writer at First Things on Twitter. The data here strongly suggests that Christian millennials are being uh, catechized by their uh, colleges, not churches. In her book, Reciprocal Church, Sharon Galgay Ketchum, a practical theologian at Gordon College, challenged Christian elders to give younger generations a chance to actively engage their faith in the church context rather than receive the traditions passed on to them. Two-thirds of church-going Christians still stop, or rather will stop, attending at some point in the years after turning 18, some returning regularly, some occasionally, and some not at all. Well, the rise of the religiously unaffiliated, uh, also known as nuns, now roughly a quarter of the population has taken away the expectation for younger generations to identify as Christians just for the sake of it. Without the pull of cultural Christianity, leaders see the millennials who do stay involved in their churches as particularly committed and faithful. Though the Christian population of this generation is likely no higher than 15 percent, these young people may well turn the world upside down with their commitments and causes. Lifeway Christian Resource CEO Tom Rayner and son um, Jess R. Rayner in their book Millennials writes, Millennial Christians are not content with business as usual churches. To the contrary, they will connect with churches on it um, on if those um, churches are willing to sell out for the sake of the gospel. Well, millennial leaders have begun assuming the mantle at major uh, churches and ministries. Uh, more than two dozen millennials now hold senior pastor positions at congregations with more than a thousand attendees, with some megachurch pastors as young as 32, according to Leadership Network. But evangelism remains a sticking point among the 21st century crowd, which sees tent revivals and tracks as a thing of the past. Evangelism is often presented as an old school style, out of style idea with little value or relevance to our fast paced urban world, wrote Hannah Gronowski, the founder and the director of Generation Distinct for the exchange last year. Younger folks are tempted to believe instead, if you just live good enough lives, we can forego the conversion entirely and people around us will almost magically come to know Jesus through our good actions and selfless character, she said. This style of evangelism is becoming more and more prevalent in a culture constantly looking for the fast track and the simple fix. Well, tracks may no longer be um, the thing or uh, door-to-door evangelism, but there are all kinds of ways of sharing one's faith um, with new technology that one would hope will eventually be embraced. Well, snow, they tell us, could start falling early Saturday morning. I'm hearing different things, 
different ways, Friday night, Saturday morning, with as much as four inches or more building up through Sunday. That's according to um, one meteorologist here in the area. Several forecast models now show all snow starting early Saturday morning. If true, occasional snow would fall near sea level all day and all of Saturday morning. Portland accumulations could reach four inches of snow and possibly higher through noon on Sunday. Well, some models show the possibility of 14 inches of snow through this Tuesday. Other models show eight inches falling Monday night. Um, I think it will be a widespread valley snow event. Uh, says said meteorologist Matt Safino. He expects four to eight inches of snow accumulation in the coast range on Saturday, six to 12 inches in the Columbia River Gorge. There will be a mix of rain and snow from Thursday evening uh, through Sunday evening before the snow on the weekend, according to the National Weather Service. The central Columbia River Gorge could get snow through the entire day, Friday. Um, rain is expected in areas below a thousand feet on Friday, according to once again, the national weather service. So the truth is we don't really know when the snow will start falling and to, uh, in what accumulations, but we're being told at this point, looking at the seven day forecast temperatures in the forties today, 39 tomorrow with uh, snow beginning uh, mixed with rain at some point during the day. Temperatures on Saturday, um, the high of 38, low of 28, and then on Sunday, high of 34, low of 26, and we're expecting snow showers then. Um, More flurries on Monday with a high of 35, low of 30 degrees, and on Tuesday, high of 36 and low of 28 degrees. By Monday, we should have a little more sunshine, and we'll hope that this whole mess, whatever it ends up being, a mess or not, uh, will have um, run its course. So that just gives you an overview. And again, the truth is we don't really know what's going to happen, but we do expect there will be some snowfall. Well, tomorrow being Friday, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. I hope you will join us for that. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.